Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Colossians chapter 1, and I will pick up at verse 21 and read to the end of the chapter, but the sermon will be focusing on verse uh, 24. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, And not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions." Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word this this morning again on your Lord's Day. Father, we We ask that you would feed us, that you would build us up, that you would, uh, Father, tear down the sins that we have erected and in its place, I pray that there would be faith. Father, I pray that as we look at this passage that teaches us about suffering, that you might help us to contemplate uh, our sufferings, but more so the sufferings of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would illumine our minds, that you would help our hearts to be focused on your glory, and that you would help me to preach. Father, that you would anoint my lips to preach your word. Father, feed us, strengthen us, build up your people, make us into a a flock that is not wandering into danger, but is is safely, safely gathered to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So let me start with a question, and it's it's a question you've likely thought about as a Christian, um, but not just as a Christian, as a as a sentient human being. You've thought about this. Um, Would you? But but a particular kind of 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 question, um, would you ever willingly choose to suffer? 
willingly choose to suffer. Now, the reason I ask, you're going to suffer one way or the other. You know, this life is a veil of tears. It is, a, it is going from one misery to the next misery. No matter what the commercials tell you this time of year. Right? Don't believe the mythology of your television sets. It is one misery to the next. And the only good thing there is in this world is God himself. Okay, but, but my question is, and so, so, you know, so much money, so much time, so much of our efforts, our own personal efforts, is to avoid suffering. I get a headache, I go get Tylenol. I don't just sit there and suffer. That's stupid when there's something that can relieve it. I get a Tylenol, right? And so that's a, a little example. But just think of all the other ways that you avoid suffering in your life. Um, the, uh, you know, just moving the thermostat up one or two notches to avoid the, the shivering and the suffering of the day. But would you ever willingly choose to suffer, right? Choosing to embrace suffering, taking on suffering for a certain purpose. That's the question I have today. Of course, the best example of that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly, willingly humbled himself, willingly entered into this, this time and space, right? Willingly was, was humiliated, willingly suffered on the cross. And all of that, he, he chose. He chose to do that willingly. Was God, does God present us with the, with the option to suffer or not? Um. And should we embrace that suffering? Would you ever choose to suffer when two options are held before you? Suffering or comfort? Difficulty or ease? You know, that's... Uh, maybe every decision we make is, is this going to make me suffer or not suffer? Right? Should I take this job? Well, is it going to relieve suffering or is it going to increase suffering? So, I mean, in a sense, every question is this question of suffering. But I want this passage to help us and to teach us to think about willingly embracing suffering. I read sometime in the past a biography of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson, Adoniram. It's a great name for, for a child. Ad, it's, it sounds old school, but it's, um, you know, it's historical. Adoniram Judson, who was, uh, he was the first, first American foreign missionary, basically. Uh, he went to uh, Burma, um, it's modern-day Myanmar, but he went to uh, Burma in the early 1800s. And though he, he left with as much idealism as a missionary has to have, right? Missionaries have to be, um, they have to have faith, right? They have to have an idealism. They have to go expecting the Lord to do things. Um, he knew, so he was idealistic when he left, but he knew he was going to have to suffer. And so to go meant willingly embracing suffering. Um, Just as he was coming to terms with his call to the foreign field, he was offered a cushy job of the uh, assistant pastor position at Park Street Church in Boston. So just just as he's about to disembark or embark on, uh, on this 
this trip. He's offered a tall steeple, assistant pastor. I mean, not even the senior pastor, just assistant pastor, so he could just hide in the corner for a while, right? I'm just kidding. Um, and his parents were delighted at the prospect. His parents really were delighted that this church would offer him this position. And so in, you can imagine that he's like, okay, suffering or comfort, suffering or comfort, suffering and not pleasing my parents or comfort and pleasing my parents, all these things coming down to that question. And um, <clears throat> I mean, think of the gap in this choice as well. Months at sea. No, I mean, this is not like missionaries going on the field today who have $100,000 budgets and who build a house the first few months they get on the, the field. He goes to Burma where he knows not a single person across the ocean in a, in a ship, and he doesn't even know if he'll arrive alive, you know. Um, well, around this time, he met the woman who had become his wife. Okay, so more choices, right? More choices. Do I bring my wife along with me in this endeavor? Adoniram wrote the following to her father before he asked for her hand in marriage. So that he, he's corresponding with the father, and he, he says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. I have to ask you if you, you're allowed, I mean, if, if we get married, you're probably never going to see your daughter again. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. So we see that Adoniram Judson knew to a certain extent that what he was choosing for himself and for his wife was suffering. And he knew why he was doing it, for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the, for the building up of the body of Jesus Christ, the church, for her glory. Now Paul, Paul is a man who rejoiced in his sufferings. He's constantly exhorting us to rejoice in our sufferings, and we kinda, it, it kind of makes us tick a little bit when we hear that. We've spent our lives avoiding suffering, and Paul tells us to rejoice in our sufferings. The, the Apostle Paul, as we read in our passage this morning in Colossians, rejoiced in his sufferings. What sort of sufferings? You remember his sufferings, right? Um, he tells the, the Corinthian church, I speak as if insane. Um, I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, 
dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. And so, I mean, you just stop and meditate on one of those things that Paul experienced. And you're like, wow, I've, I've not even come close to willingly embracing suffering as the Apostle Paul was required to. Of course, when Jesus called the Apostle Paul, he said, I'm going to show you how much things you must suffer for my name. And remember that Paul was writing that letter to the Corinthians from prison. He's imprisoned. right At the very end of Acts, the last two verses, we read about his imprisonment, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So even, even while he's in prison, he's making the most of that. And so it seems that the Apostle Paul was at that point under guard, unable to leave his house that he was renting, but free to have visitors. He was under some sort of Roman house arrest. Epaphras, who it seems was the pastor or an elder of the church in Colossae, was one of those visitors who came to see Paul. So Paul wrote this letter to the church of the Colossians to address some of the problems Epaphras had discussed with him, and his freedom is gone. So... Um, and so we see Paul all over the place willingly embracing suffering for a particular purpose. We also know that Jesus Christ willingly suffered. That, it's, that is almost ridiculous to say. Of course he willingly suffered. What has Jesus ever done that was not willingly done? In Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus is described as the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross willingly. Isaiah 53 says of Jesus, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from... Uh, from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. The passage goes on, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. That's willingly and graciously suffering. There he stood before the crushing blow of his father, and he submitted himself to that wrath, conforming his will to the will of his father. He lay down his life for the sheep and suffered the humiliation of the cross, the scorn of men, and the wrath of God. That's what Jesus willingly suffered for your souls. The Apostle Paul's suffering is just a a portion of the larger suffering of the church. Notice what the Apostle Paul says next in our passage in Colossians. He says that he rejoices 
in his sufferings for their sake, and in his flesh he does his share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The point I want to draw out of this first is, is Paul sees his sufferings as part of his share of sufferings. It's one share in all the sufferings that the people of God have together. Just one share. Um, he has his portion. And it's as if he's saying we all have our own portion. right? We all have our own portion of suffering that the Lord will bring to us. I have my portion. You have your portion. Um, and, and so... And this just makes sense because it's essentially proving the point of what Jesus said. As Jesus went, so his followers would go. This is what Jesus has told his apostles as recorded in Matthew 10. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever you per- they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Right, so... As it goes with me, so it will go with you. That's what Jesus is saying to them. So the Apostle Paul in our passage in Colossians is echoing Jesus' words. Jesus suffered. Why would we expect that we would not? Jesus suffered and laid out a pattern of faithfulness. Why would we expect that faithfulness in the 21st century uh, American context would, would suddenly be easy and cushy? Jesus suffered. Think about it. The Son of God suffered. The Son of God suffered, and he said, as it goes with the master, so it goes with the slave. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Right? That He suffered for you. Now you're going to suffer for others. And you're going to suffer for the sake of the body of Christ, the building up of the church. Now, it's all very abstract. What do I mean by suffering? What, what will our suffering look like? Will it look like Adoniram Judson's? It might. It might could look like that. Um, <clears throat> it could... It could uh, um, It could look like... Uh, having the fifth, sixth, or seventh child, right? It could look like um, it could look like taking the pay decrease to remain a part of a church in a certain area and not not go up the corporate ladder. It can look a thousand different ways. The sufferings that we embrace for the sake of the building up of the body. Not just sufferings that come upon us as living in a fallen world. You know, the aches and the pains and the, the bum knees and the thrown out backs. Um, I'm talking about those sufferings that we take on as a testimony to God's faithfulness and that lead to the building of the church. 
The Apostle Paul says that his suffering is doing his share in filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. And that's a phrase that many of us have thought about a lot and, and perplexed over. Um, what were Christ's afflictions and what did they accomplish? Ask that question. What were Christ's afflictions and what did they accomplish? I think we can answer that without any question. The suffering he went through in this life was particularly focused on his work on the cross. That is precisely what Paul has just mentioned previously in this passage. It was the cross which paid the penalty for our sins. It was the cross which made peace between us and God. It was the cross that earned heaven for us. It was the cross that redeemed God's people. As the Apostle um, Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. That's the suffering that Jesus went through. And in Hebrews, we read about the perfection of Christ's afflictions on the cross. It says this, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering he's perfected for all time all those who are sanctified. Those are very effective afflictions, aren't they? That is quite an accomplishment through those sufferings, isn't it? The, the sufferings of Jesus perfect for all time all the elect. And that begs the question, how in the world could there be something lacking in Christ's afflictions then? How in the world could there be something lacking? Paul says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Some say that Christ's afflictions were, were ineffective to perfect his people, to expiate, to remove all our sins, and to merit redemption. They, they paid, his sufferings paid, say, 99% of the way, and we have to make up the last 1%. Roman Catholics believe that some more merit must be added on top of what Christ has earned. And that um, it wasn't by one offering he perfected for all time, all the saints. So they offer a menu of merits, indulgences, pilgrimages, penance, masses, praying to saints, and receiving from all the built-up extra merit that is um, stored somewhere in the Vatican. Um, we reject such an explanation because of those verses I read earlier. Christ's afflictions merit heaven for his people. His afflictions perfect them. There is no gap where we have to where we have to fill it with some sort of, uh, where we have to, you know, caulk the gap to um, keep the, uh, the merit up. So what is, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? It's still stated here. There is something lacking in Christ's afflictions. Calvin says this, As Christ has suffered once in his own person, so he suffers daily in his members. That's the answer right there. As Christ has suffered once in his own person, so he suffers daily in his members, and in this way, 
there are filled up those sufferings which the Father has appointed for his body by his decree. In other words, God has appointed suffering for his body, the church, his people, as they follow the suffering of the Son of God. So the the sufferings of Jesus Christ will always be visible through the suffering of the people of his church as they reflect the sufferings of Christ. Right? Christ suffered on the cross, and then he rose again, and he ascended, and he seated to the right hand of the Father, and we no longer see him suffering. But where do we see him suffering? Here, in his people. His people suffer. Right? His people willingly embrace suffering, and so the world looks upon the church and sees individually the members suffering, and what do they see in that suffering? They see the cross of Jesus Christ. This is how John Piper puts it. God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that when we offer the Christ of the cross to the people, they see the Christ of the cross in us. We are to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in offering him to them in living the life of love he lived. So in other words, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is the fact that his afflictions, his wounds, are no longer seen by the world. They aren't directly visible. He has ascended to the Father. He's seated to the right hand. But Christ's afflictions are seen now in his people, the church, showing forth his suffering, showing forth his life of sacrificial love, showing forth his endurance in persecution, showing forth his loving character in the face of enemies. So the Apostle Paul is demonstrating to the world, just as you and I are called to, the blessedness of Christ-likeness. And a significant part of Christ's likeness is the calling to willingly suffer. To willingly suffer. He makes... The Christian makes visible Christ's sufferings in his own sufferings. This is how he says that in the book of 2 Corinthians... But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And then listen to this, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal bodies. This leads us to the question I was asking before. All of this has been very abstract, so what will our suffering look like? How will you and I, just as the Apostle Paul did, fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? How will you and I demonstrate to the world this aspect of, of Christ-likeness. Well, first of all, it may be going after a life of self-denial 
like that of the Apostle Paul or like that of Adoniram Judson. This is so seldom ever chosen these days. Um, Even the missionaries I know, there doesn't seem to be a, a... There are some that are selfless, don't get me wrong, but there are many I see who who are doing it because they want to relive a mountaintop experience they had in a, in a one-week short-term mission trip. But there's not a burden for lost souls. There's not a, a reckoning with the suffering that this is going to lead to. There, there's no, and, and it's not front-line sort of ministry. It's, you know, Scotland. Um, <clears throat> but it may be that. You know, maybe God is calling one of you children to lead, to, to live a self-denying life like that. Where you leave behind technology and you leave behind all the distractions and you go and love a tribe in the middle of South America. Second, it will be, it will always be this. Your suffering will always be this. Suffer Peter says this, suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Our obedience to God over against what our guts want us to do will be suffering. Obedience to God will lead to suffering. And the suffering there will come in two directions. First, our mind will be, you know, our mind will be telling us to give in. It'll be a fight between the flesh and the spirit. And, and our mind will be saying, eat, drink, and be merry. Give over to images on your computer. Get drunk, fight, hit her. Don't take responsibility for your family. Don't lead. Belittle him. Just, just do it. Right? And the suffering will come when we say no to all those things. I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to glorify God. I'm not just going to give myself over to my sin. The other direction will be from those who are surprised that you are making such efforts to glorify God. They will mock you. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to live godly, you're going to be persecuted. They're suffering. Just live godly. Live according to the word of God. Say, have a mouth that speaks according to the, 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 the saltiness that we're supposed to have as Christians. And see what persecution comes. 1 Peter 4 says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They'll give an account. He's like, don't worry about that. They'll give an account. Third, another form of suffering that will demonstrate Christ's afflictions to the world is to always be ready to swim against the current. Swim against the current of the culture. To demonstrate a fear of God through, our, through uh, obedience is to demonstrate uh, the fear of God Jesus had upon the cross. Is there really any better way to say to the world, I live for Jesus Christ, than that? Right? There these are the ones that make us uncomfortable because we've made peace with so many of our, our culture's conventions without stopping to consider 
whether or not my participation in these things pleases God. Homosexuality. Euthanasia, abortion, money, greed, fertility enhancement, fertility avoidance. I mean, bio, just bio craziness, right? The attempt to live forever. Um, biotechnologies. Uh, the the um, <clears throat> the very the ethics of of the smartphone. The ethics of, of being alone together, right? Always alone with our phones while we're around people, right? What, you know, what is our, our Christian mind on these things? And should we, should we be willing to be seen as, as um, Luddites and willing to be seen as, as old-fashioned? And perhaps maybe we will be, but maybe in God's eyes we'll be seen as wise. The easiest way to determine whether or not we have made compromises with our culture, whether or not we've chosen culture, man's word, over God's word, is to find all those places in Scripture that make us uncomfortable and make us cringe. It's like, ugh, man, I can't imagine sharing that verse around the Thanksgiving table with my crazy aunt and uncle. You know, but that's where we should probably see if we're being unfaithful. Where does Scripture make us uncomfortable? Is it, um, where do you cringe? Where do you begin to judge God when you read Scripture? Because your culture has taught you something, something different. Is it when we come across passages on homosexuality? I mean, honestly. It is so costly today to say anything truthful about homosexuality from God's word. That we have all made compromises in those areas. Right? Is it, is it when it comes to um, just marriage? Marriage. Read Ephesians chapter 5, you know, at your, your work Bible study and see what happens. See if the whole conversation revolves around how can we obey this or how does this just not apply to us anymore. Men being the head of homes and wives submitting. We cringe when we read what Scripture says about how we use our tongues, right? What we say, that every last word will be, will be judged, every every unthinking word um, <clears throat> we cringe when we read about what it what scripture says about the love of money we cringe when we read what Jesus that Jesus says that he'll be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him and you've been ashamed of Jesus because you were unwilling to talk to talk to the the checkout clerk about Jesus you had that opportunity this week and you were like nah She's really not worthy of my attention. We cringe when we read about what it says about not loving God if we don't love our brothers and sisters in the church. You know, you read 1 John and, and, and you think, oh man, 
We cringe when we read about what it says about suffering. Those who are faithful to Jesus will suffer. We cringe just in this whole topic, suffering. So again, examine yourself. When was the last time your conscience was bound to the word of God in such a way that you knew obedience would be costly? You knew obedience to a particular command of scripture was going to be very costly to you that it was actually going to lead to your suffering. Has it ever been that way? Has there ever been something in your pursuit of sanctification, in your pursuit of God, where you knew obedience to that is really going to be uh, painful? Where is it in your life where you are saying, God, we will follow your will as you have taught us in your word, even if it hurts? Even if it hurts? Even if I lose all my friends. It's like that song that was sung for the offertory. Give me Christ or I die. <coughs> right? I don't, I, don't want, I don't need anything else. Just give me Christ. Right? Um, <clears throat> and where God makes you faithful, you will be demonstrating. Where God makes you faithful in that suffering you will then, for the first time in your Christian life, have a powerful witness. You've been trying to witness through your words. You've been trying to witness through, um, you know, reading apologetics. You've been trying to witness, and all the, all the time God has just been saying to you, no, just obey my word, and you're going to suffer, and out of that suffering will come your most powerful witness. That's what will happen, because you'll have to be, you'll have to be loving me. Okay, and so that some of you just need to take on challenges in your life. You've made your life not suffering. That's been your pursuit. You know, I see people who are, who are, you know, pursuing adoption, and I say, well, that's a good one. That's some serious, that's a serious challenge. I see people with large families having more children. I say, that's a serious challenge. It's a serious challenge to a 40-year-old 40, 40 vertebrae in the back. You know, I see people being amazingly generous with their, with their money to the point where it's causing them to suffer. And, and, and I say, this is where we witness. Where is your suffering? If you're, if you're a high school student, just go to the lunch table and talk about Jesus. You'll suffer. You'll suffer. You'll suffer having to keep the topic on Jesus. Right? But that will be your witness. And you can go home with your head held high thinking, I suffered for the sake of Christ, and I'm going to do it again tomorrow. Right? Speak of Jesus Christ. Speak of your Savior. When it's awkward, when the culture tells you you shouldn't, right? The expectation of every one of our workplaces is that we don't talk about Jesus. Should we obey man or should we obey God in that? You think the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul was ever silent at any point about their Savior after the giving of the Holy Spirit? They ran away from Jesus when he was crucified. 
more will be accomplished by your example than by your stammering tongue. And this is the way to do it. Suffer for Christ. Do, 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 um, do something you haven't done for Christ. Look at some area of Scripture where you haven't been obeying and then, then take it on. And you'll agonize through it. And God will be glorified by it. God will be glorified by it. Okay? So, so do that work. Have those family, those family conferences where you get together and say, okay, where have we been falling short? What haven't we done? What do we know God would have us do that we just refuse to do? And let's get busy trusting him there and suffering because of it. And, and maybe, just maybe, there'll be more witnessing toward the glory of Jesus Christ in this church than there has been up to this point. Let's pray.